Welcome to this episode of Portraits and Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. We're joined again today with Dr. Kirsten Soriano Broberg, talking about the piece that she is writing for the symphony, the commissioned work, and with us also is maestro Clay Couturio and our managing director, Lori Garvey. So thank you, everybody, for being here with us this afternoon. So, Kirsten, first of all, how are you doing? How's everything going? Everything's going great. How are you? Fine, just fine. I know we've talked briefly a little bit about uh, your work, but let's for our listeners, let's talk about uh, the general concept of this work. Sure. So I know that at the beginning of the process, I was talking a lot about transformation in music and creating a journey for listeners. And one thing I wanted to work with with this piece is this idea of moving from darkness to light. Um, another idea that has come to me since then is um, I've always wanted to write a piece that deals metaphorically with the creation story in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of pieces I admire that do that. One in particular is Thomas Otis's In Seven Days is Piano Concerto. That's a really gorgeous piece uh, that's been performed widely by a lot of professional orchestras. So that's another um, sort of programmatic idea I have for this piece. And then another thing that's happened biographically in my life, I know I talked last time about how the events of my life somehow um, enter into my compositional process. I, I gave birth to my first child this summer. So uh, this idea of, of going from darkness to light or void into presence has sort of um, infected my biographical life this summer as well. So those are some metaphors I'm dealing with the piece. And congratulations, by the way, to you and your husband. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, oh, absolutely. Very congratulations. Yeah. So this idea of darkness to light, well, of course, goes along with the creation story, and it totally makes sense with your child. Are there any other analogies that go with the with darkness to light? So in the beginning of the process, and last time we talked, I was thinking about the COVID pandemic and how mm -hmm. a lot of us were working or living in isolation. And then when the vaccine came out, um, people were moving to more of a communal feeling and starting to see family members again and that sort of thing. So that felt like, at least also biographically for me, um, a moment of moving from darkness to light because I was able to see my family for the first time in over a year and things like that at that time. So I think there are, there are three sort of metaphors um, that are working um, in my life when, and in some other people's lives as well right now um, that fit that sort of darkness to light journey. And just in your experience, talking to other composers maybe, do, do a lot of composers, when they're writing a piece, does it have to do with what's going on in their lives? Or do some composers separate that idea and just compose whatever is necessary at that, that moment it has nothing to do with their life? I think it's completely individual from person to person. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of artists who have like a very strong idea for a piece that might be about a philosophical concept or another very specific idea, and they seem completely able to separate what's going on in their lives or what's going on with them emotionally and that sort of thing from their work, and that's completely valid and a great way to work. For me, it's not something that's really possible. If, if I'm trying to be really authentic in my work as an artist and as a person, mm -hmm. 
I have a hard time just separating what's going on with me personally with with my music. It descends, it tends to um, enter into my compositional process at some point in time, and for me, that's just part of being like really authentic and genuine and and what I'm doing as an artist at that point in time. Well, and as a performer, it's sometimes it's hard to separate that as well. For me, we are always trying to recreate and the intention of what the composer their their ideas, but it's our personality actually performing at the same time. So it's kind of a mix of of all of that. Absolutely. And for myself, when I'm performing or reading through music as a musician, um, you know, if the music affects me emotionally, I tend to draw on my personal experiences that help me relate to that music to express myself in my performance. So right. I think that that's very true. So let's go back to this idea of darkness to light, and we had some analogies to it. How do you correlate that into the musical process? What are we? What have you done musically that shows this darkness to light? Sure. So I was sharing a bit of the, the score with uh, Maestro Cotorio yesterday, and I showed the transformation that happens musically from darkness to light. And so in very specific terms, um, the music starts as low as possible with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, with the contrabasses starting on their open E string, their very lowest E string. And it's it's kind of interesting because I would, you know, it's, it's a great process to work personally with an orchestra, with a conductor, and when you know exactly what the ensemble is going to be, because I knew as a fact there would be five contrabasses mm-hmm. in this particular performance. And so the beginning of the piece starts with each contrabass player. And for those of you who aren't really familiar with the um, instruments in the orchestra, that's the lowest biggest string and instrument. Um, each of those contrabasses is playing as a soloist. They each have their own part and they're each starting in the very, very lowest part of their instrument. And um, those low strings and any open string, like a string that you're playing without fingering any notes on it, are gonna, they're gonna have a lot of resonance. It's just gonna have like a great big sound and be very reverberant. So they start at the lowest possible note that they can play on this open string that's gonna be very resonant. And they're each soloist, and the piece sort of grows gradually upward and register from there. So we start with the contrabasses, and they're answered by the cellos, each are soloists as well. And then the, the piece gradually grows and register, gradually gets higher and higher and higher. And we move to the violas, and finally to the violins. And as that's happening, the rhythms pick up in activity. So we start with these low, really long tones that are sort of... Um, you know, this, they're sort of evoking this void, this this void, this darkness, mm-hmm. this lack of motion. And then we, we have more and more rhythmic motion as we gain um, height and register. And then we move from E minor, which is a very sort of dark, or some people say sad key. And E minor key, a lot of people say is sad. And then we move to E major, which is very bright. Um, so there are three things that happen. We move from from low to high, we move from um, a lack of rhythmic activity to more rhythmic activity, and we move from a minor key to a major key. Mm-hmm. And also, by going from low to high in those instrument ranges, it can go from a, a somber, darker tone into a more brilliant sounding tone as you change keys, too. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, is as you uh, move orchestrationally from the lower strings of the string instruments to the higher strings, there's more brightness. Well, um, coloristically. So, 
that's a great representation of dark to light. There are other themes in this work as well, right? You, you want to discuss a little bit about the various themes? Sure. So um, I was showing doc, uh, Dr. Couturio, Maestro Couturio yesterday, a part that is evoking the sea because there's imagery in the creation story of, of different types of waters. So there's the waters on earth, there's the waters in the heaven. And so um, I created in the string parts these waves. It starts again really low, and then the waves move up from the lower string instruments to the higher string instruments and then back down. So they're literally creating gesturally these waves. So if you were to be able to draw a picture of the macro gesture of this string part, you could actually draw some waves. Um, and so that's one of the metaphors and um, something that you'll be able to hear and see in the score. Exactly. That's, also- that's what I was going to mention is you showed me yesterday. And the first thing I thought when you said waves, before I was even thinking of the sound, you can see the notes going up and down within each of the string instruments. And it looks like waves the way it's on the page. And of course, it's going to sound like that as well. Absolutely. That was completely intentional. So I'm glad that you saw that. <laughs> well, it <That's> worked. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, there's also a part about land and sea. And so for me, orchestration is a lot about color and I don't necessarily have synesthesia where when you hear a harmony or a color, you see colors. I don't, I don't have that sort of phenomenon personally. Like um, we can, we think of Olivier Messiaen, the composer who had that, mm-hmm. um, has synesthesia, but I associate different orchestral colors with different colors. And for me, um, double reeds are always very green. So whenever I'm um, evoking something like, land or or plant life or anything like that i tend to bring out my bassoons and my oboes and english horns so that will be happening in the piece as well um to represent land and plant life and that sort of thing and just for our listeners Uh, when when uh dr broberg says double reed we're talking about oboes and bassoons absolutely um then there's part of the piece that's going to evoke sun moon and stars and I'll be using some metal percussion for that. Um, then there is a part about living creatures such as um, birds. And so that's going to be evoked by pizzicato dovetailed with flute sounds. So that's, those are some of the colors and images that are going to be in the piece that you'll be able to, to hear or imagine, or at least that I'm hearing and imagining, and, and perhaps you will as well. And you had mentioned, I think, uh, uh, Slight tempo change, like at the beginning, part of the darkness and murkiness is is a slower tempo, and there is an accelerando into the light. Is that correct? Absolutely. And then there's a section that evokes the light, and there's there's very bright and rich chords. And then those come back at the end of the piece, and then they are um, diminuted. So all the rhythms are cut in half. So we're going to hear, even after that accelerando, with that gesture, with those chords, we'll hear that same thing come back at the end, but twice as fast even. Um, but with, And then also it's going to be orchestrated 2D for the entire orchestra. So we'll hear the brass playing those big chords as well because creation has occurred and everything is present and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. the, the brightest moment will be at the very end of the piece with the entire orchestra playing those chords twice as fast as before. And... Um... I know we were talking a little bit yesterday about the score, just you and I alone, and we were talking about the brass, and 
just brass writing in particular, and I know you said you had played horn and a little bit of trumpet at, at some point. Uh, when you write for brass, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about how I'd feel if that part showed up on my music stand in front of me <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a brass player. So um, I think part of, of writing for orchestra, whether you want to write music that's really complex or difficult to play, or whether you want to write something that's idiomatic and fits well for the instruments, is thinking about the psychology of orchestration is what I call it. So how the player is going to feel when that part shows up on their music stand. So when I'm writing something for brass, I think about how I feel if it showed up on my music stand. And I try to be empathetic when I'm writing for other instruments as well, whether, whether or not I play those instruments to try to think how does the instrument work, what works well in the instrument, what feels um, good, what's going to have more of a higher rate of success mm-hmm. um, in performance, which will ha- what will have less of a higher rate of success. And some composers, they want to create sort of an anxiety um, in the performance that's part of their aesthetic. And that's, I think, really interesting, but it's not necessarily something that I like to do with my music. I think more about if I want to create something that sounds virtuosic or or it has a little bit more complexity, doing it in a way that works well in the instruments so that that it's um, doable and that there's going to be a high rate of success and that perhaps the musician would get something like that understand that might be a little bit um, more challenging, but it's doable and it's something that's exciting to work toward because it's, it's going to be a positive experience. Like this is a challenge that's doable that I can achieve. And if I work toward it, it's going to... Um, be something enjoyable. Right. When I look at your scores, and, and this, including this one, uh, it always, I always feel like she's uh, really trying to challenge them musically, but also, also technically in a way, but, but in a way that puts them in a position to succeed. It's not just hard for its own sake, if it's going to be hard. It, there's a reason, there's a good musical reason for it. But it also fits the instruments well. I always look for that in composers, too. Uh, not that it always has to be that way. I mean, they're great composers. I can think of uh, Robert Schumann, the, the scherzo movement of the, of the Second Symphony. That's a famous violin excerpt. It is very pianistic. It fits well in the piano. It's not on the violin. doesn't fit well. So even great composers, you know, have certain things in mind, and, and, but it doesn't fit the instrument. But I always feel like you've, you've taken care to, to learn the instruments and what, what works well uh, and, and what they can work with. And so thank you for doing that as a composer. Well, it's something I've learned over the years. I certainly didn't do that always. Um, it's my early, earlier pieces. You know, I, I wasn't as knowledgeable about how the instruments worked or... It's a lifetime uh, journey. I wasn't as, it is, or maybe I wasn't as empathetic as I am now to like I said, the psychology of orchestration and that sort of thing, but working with humans over the years. So I always tell my students that your greatest teachers as, you know, for a composer aren't going to be your composition teachers. It could be the musicians and conductors you work with. And for me, that's really been true. So like to write a piece that maybe doesn't work as well in an instrument and then have a heart to heart with a friend who played it. They mm-hmm. said, you know, that, that part was really, really difficult for me and not in a way that was enjoyable. Like I spent a month of my life working on it. And if it just had been transposed down a half step, it would have been really easy. You know, that's something that really hits you. Like that's someone's time. That's that those are moments of their life that they spent um, because I wasn't as empathetic or as knowledgeable as I could have been. Mm -hmm. So that's something I've learned over the years. So um, 
we've talked about the darkness to light and the various themes. There is a climax at the end of the piece. Is that correct? Indeed. And then how does the piece end? So there's this, um, so as I mentioned, this sort of joyous chord that happened at the beginning, happened toward the end, but um, 2D for the entire orchestra and twice as fast. And then we move into the period of rest. Um, and so it's sort of this ethereal transcendental music that's very lightly orchestrated for strings and some mm -hmm. flutes, uh, perhaps a little bow vibraphone at the end as well it, to create this just very ethereal texture. And was there a particular reason for that or just wondering after a big climax and have it with the ethereal ending? So um, that's specifically due to the creation story because on the seventh day um, it's a period of rest. So go. that was... That was why specifically. Wonderful. And uh, you had mentioned a vibraphone. So, uh, you know, as a conductor, I go to the rehearsal and I walk on stage and I look across the orchestra and I want to see who's there and if they're not there, why they're not there. But when I'm studying a score, one of the first things I do after re background research is go through the instrumentation. Who do we need to be able to play this piece? So would you mind for just for our listeners going through the instrumentation? What what instruments do we need to play this work? Sure, absolutely. So we have um, double winds for the most part, two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, and then it's gonna be either two or three bassoons. If, um, I, if I remember correctly, we can have two bassoons and contrabassoons. That's correct, that's correct. Um, then we have four horn players, two trumpet players, three trombones. Mm -hmm. No tuba, no. interestingly. Yeah. Timpani, one percussionist, and then we have strings. And and that's mainly because the other works on the program don't call for tuba. And sometimes uh, living composers, especially when they're commissioned, there are some parameters at times. Uh, you would know this much more than me, and that that was one of them on this concert. We don't have the tubas on the on the other parts of the concert, and so we're just not going to have a tuba on this concert. Oh, sure, I I love. It. For some reason, I love restrictions as a composer or as an artist. So there's sort of two philosophies that people sometimes talk about when you're starting a piece. You either start with nothing or you start with everything. And so for me, it's number two. I start with everything. And when someone imposes some sort of restriction, like it's not everything, it's going to be double wins, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It gives you this sort of restriction that forces creativity to some extent. And I enjoy that. One other thing I thought about between when we talked yesterday and, and now uh, you you mentioned the key. It's going from E minor to E major. And then I thought about the rest of the program. The Brahms Symphony is in F major, so that's next to E. And then the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto is in D major. So I'm just, if you know the keyboard or the piano, where those lie, they're pretty close together, D, E, and F, right on right next to each other. But in terms of keys themselves, they bring out so many different emotions. Those three, even though they're close together on the keyboard, it's very different keys as far emotionally to me. I don't know if right. you agree or disagree with that, Kirsten. Absolutely. So, Kirsten, does the does the piece have any connection to any other of the works that you've composed? It does. So I think I mentioned last time that we talked that I've been spending a lot of time in the past 10, 15 years composing cycles of extractable works where you have a piece or a collection of pieces that could be performed in a single event, but they also can create a large overarching macro structure when performed together. 
So this is part of a big cycle I've been working on for orchestra and choir. Some of the movements are for just orchestra, some are for just choir. There's one movement for both orchestra and choir that UNT actually premiered a couple of years ago um, called Odes of Praise. And that one actually includes two texts set in Latin from the Psalms, the Book of Psalms. Um, and it's for choir and orchestra and that was premiered a few years ago. So it has a connection to that piece. Some um, of the chords or harmonies uh, resemble some passages in those, in that particular piece, but with variation, textural variation, melodic variation, um, perhaps the chords have different versions, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's just a couple of sections in the piece that resemble that piece. Sure. So if you were to hear the entire cycle, there would be elements that come back, but varied um, later and also in different keys, et cetera. So any way that you think of varying musical material in the larger piece, I've been thinking about those ways of varying material. So uh, there'll be a bit of a recapitulation at the end of the cycle, but like I said, um, the music's changed, it's transformed. Um, it's completely different to some extent. So if somebody else listened to some of your other pieces, they would sense some continuity. Some continuity, the piece is written in a similar style. Um, so it's all gonna feel like it's part of, of the same larger work and that sort of thing, for sure. I was gonna go back just a little bit to the instrumentation. You went through everything um, and then you talked about percussion briefly. And I know you're, the piece is almost complete, but you're still working on a few other things. And one of them is because we talked yesterday about percussion. Have you, have you, uh, just name a few of the percussion instruments you're thinking of of putting in the work. Sure. I'm definitely hoping for vibraphone. That's mm -hmm. usually one that I, I almost can't live without. Uh, and those are pretty common, so not anticipating too many issues with that. So, Dr. Couturier, please correct me if I'm wrong there, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll live without it if I have to. No, but no. I, I love the vibraphone. We'll make it work. Great. Then I'm considering glockenspiel and or crotales. Um, a few on glocken, perhaps a couple of tubular bells, um, but not necessarily a full set of on glocken or tubular bells, maybe a few pitches from each. Um, and the, just for our audience, the glockenspiel is uh, orchestra bells hit with mallets. Uh, they may not all know what crotales are. Can you explain crotales? So it's a set of, um, it's a metal, it's a metallophone, it's a metal instrument with, they're sort of bell-like cymbals. Um, that you hit with a, a brass mallet, a brass a beater, there's the word. <laughs> um, and it creates a really bright, glistening sound. It's similar to a glockenspiel, but it's a little bit of a richer timbre. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always associate that with like a, like a sort of a shimmery kind of texture. And they have a very strong attack. So you're going to hear like a really strong attack and then a sort of shimmering and they resonate for a really long time one of my favorite percussion instruments. Um, so often I will use crotales and have the percussionists um, strike the crotales with a metal beater, but then I also love bowed crotales where mm -hmm. you use a bow that you would play a string instrument with and bow them instead. And it's this beautiful round um, sound that sounds kind of like if you were to take your finger and, and put your finger around a wine glass, sort of this like, right. beautiful sound with a long envelope shape. So it's a sustained sound with a lot of resonance, so. And for our, our listeners, I was just gonna mention, if you wanna hear a sound of a crotale, the struck, not the bowed, 
uh, Debussy, Prelude to the Afternoon of Fawn, uses Quartales, so you could always go listen to that piece. And towards the end, there's some Quartales. Great suggestion. So I have a question, Kirsten. I'm just curious about how you name the piece. Do you think of the name after you have finished the composition, or do you write the piece? Do you write the name of the piece first and then kind of compose into that? Great question. And you know, it changes from each piece to each piece. So sometimes I have a title in mind right away. Sometimes I have an idea, sort of a concept for the title, but it doesn't crystallize until the piece is entirely complete. I mean, sometimes I write the piece and I think, oh my gosh, what in the world should I name this? Um, I would say usually it's number one or number two where I have a title in mind or I have a very strong concept and I name the piece later. Um, I don't, I don't think it's been a, it's been a very long time since I wrote a piece and then I named it subsequently, but I would say it's usually, usually I have a title in mind early or in the middle of, of composing the piece. Okay. And this work opens the program. It's the very first thing that we're going to hear at the beginning of our 60th anniversary season. So it's a big, big deal to us. And um, one of the other parameters is it's, it's, an, uh, it's not an overture per se, but it's an opener. So it's not going to be as long as like the Brahms Symphony or the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. So I asked you to for you know a seven or eight minute opener. When you write for a, a work that long versus a longer work how does how do you work with structure in that in that regard great question i'm always trying to be really sensitive about the length of a piece if someone asks for a certain length of a piece i try to accommodate that i i went to a choral conference several years ago and there was a lawyer giving a talk about commissions and commissioning length he had this great analogy he said it's sort of like um if you imagine this, you have a home with a dining room and you want a hutch built for a wall in your dining room to, to be on that wall or whatever. And um, you ask for a seven foot hutch because the wall is seven feet long and the woodworker, the carpenter gets really inspired and they decide, well, I'm going to make a 13 foot hutch. It's really, really beautiful. It's more than they asked for, but I'm really inspired and they'll be so grateful for it. And the hutch arrives and they can't fit it on their wall. So he said, that's sort of what commission length should be about. Like the like certain pro programs tend to have a certain length in mind. And you suddenly write a piece that's three times longer than what you're asked for. It might not fit on the program. They might not have time for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great story or analogy. So I try to be sensitive about that. But again, it's one of those things where I love restrictions. Um, so again, I usually start the piece with this idea of everything, and then I whittle it down to, a, you know, a smaller concept or a smaller instrumentation, smaller duration, and then I just like to work within it. I like to have restrictions um, imposed upon me because it forces creativity. So I just try to be sensitive to that and create a piece that works for that length. So with this one, um, and also having that metaphor for the creation story, there were seven days in the creation story. So I was kind of thinking about giving each section about a minute in length, but of course they vary. They're not going to be exactly the same length because those wouldn't be very interesting proportions. But um, that's something I was just sort of thinking about. It's a seven minute piece, seven days, seven major sections. About that's a minute very cool. That's very creative. Yes, yes. Well, I know the musicians are looking forward to it. I've, I've spoken to several of them and some of them know you, and some of them will get to know you, and that's that's what this whole process is about. So, Kirsten, thank you so much for your time uh, today, and I know you and I will be in touch, 
over the next uh, month or two. And then, of course, you'll be at the rehearsals and at the performance uh, in October. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, the Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.